Amen, brother. Appreciate you, Joe. Amen, amen. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for your love toward us. And God, at this moment, on the backdrop of the reality of sin and hell and judgment, we pray that you would make the glorious gospel shine ever so clear. And God is... Um, stand to preach this particular message, not an easy one, uh, not one to get all riled up about, but Lord, it's a, uh, a very serious text. So I pray, God, that we would approach this time in your word uh, with serious hearts, speaking to us, preparing us, helping us to make sure that we are ready for the day in which you return. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. And everybody said, amen. You've got a Bible with you. Luke's gospel, chapter 12, will be our text, beginning in verse 33, all the way through verse 48. So Luke chapter 12, verse 33. And you can go ahead and stand with me in honor of God's word this morning. I know you've kind of been up and down, so we'd keep that practice going, all right? That's your workout for today. Luke 12, beginning in verse 33. You got it in front of you, say yes. And uh, notice what the scripture says, sell your possessions and give to charity, make yourselves money belts which do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even the third and finds them so blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have not allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is the slave whom his master finds doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accordance with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but a few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. So let's bow together. Father, uh, your word is inerrant. We bow ourselves to the reality of what you have taught us in the scripture. And Father, although uh, the message of the exclusivity of your son Jesus Christ is not a popular one in our culture, it is nonetheless true. And so, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would speak to hearts, drawing people to salvation, especially those who are not ready. They don't know you. God, they desperately need to be saved. And, Father, I have no ability within myself to reach out and pull them into your grace. So I rest fully upon the word of God and the gospel to do such a thing, drawing people to you. And we'll give you glory for what you do this morning. Thank you for the other services and pray for strength for this one. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. And everybody said, amen. And you can be seated. 
Well, are you ready? You know, that's a real common question we hear quite often. Matter of fact, some of you said that to your kids this week as they were getting prepared to go to school. Maybe they were upstairs, they were in their room in the bathroom, and you may have knocked on the door and said, are you ready yet? Some of you experienced that this morning. You husbands, you're a lot quicker to get ready than your wives, aren't you? So you're sitting in the car blowing the horn. Are you ready? Right? Wanting her to hustle up. It's time to go to church. Can I get a witness on that, men? God bless all of you. Well, this morning, I want to ask the question, are you ready in the context of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? And this is very huge. Jesus teaches you and I that we are to put our attention as believers on eternity. We should not be living for that which is temporary, but we should be living for that which is eternal. I heard it on a message this morning as I was driving in, uh, which reminded me of a fact concerning your soul. The Bible teaches us in the book of Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity on your heart. You were made for eternity. However, there's a massive issue in a lot of people's lives. While they have this eternal void in their hearts and lives, they are seeking to fill that void with temporary things. And they are coming up each time lacking. See, God created a God-shaped void in your life that only the person of Jesus Christ can fulfill. That is an eternal void which can only be fulfilled by an eternal God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so whenever you come to faith in the Lord Jesus, you come to the one who has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to God the Father but through me. And so Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. There is no second opportunity. There is no other chance. There is no other way. There is one way, and his name is Jesus Christ. If you don't come by Jesus, you are not coming. And so this morning, the message is geared towards encouraging followers of Christ to live with eternity in mind, but it's also geared towards speaking to those who have yet to come to faith in Jesus Christ, warning you, listen, warning you of impending judgment if you don't come to Christ this morning. Now, if you'll note here how Jesus encourages the disciples to live with eternity in mind, you can see it in verse 33 through 35. He says, sell your possessions and give to charity. Make for yourselves money belts that do not wear out. And unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. And then he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus simply encourages us to live with bold faith. We talked about that last week. Trusting the Father to care for the needs of his own. We're also living now, fixing our eyes upon the reality of eternity. Jonathan Edwards once stated, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. And what a great statement that is. Lord, put eternity on our eyeballs that we are always living in light of that fact. Living in such a way that we are ready for your return. Ready for you to come. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we must live in a constant, ready state. The Lord Jesus can come at any moment. So why do we live this way? Why do we live longing and looking for the blessed hope of the return of Jesus Christ? Here's the reason we do. Three three ways or three reasons. The first one is very simple. Because his coming is expected. His coming is expected. Look at verse 36 in your Bible. It says, be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. 
Now, the illustration Jesus gives is of a master who has been away from a home. Uh, he was at a wedding feast, which in these particular days could last over a week. Could you imagine that? You go to a wedding today and it goes 45 minutes and you're like, what are we still doing in here? You know what I'm saying? Get them married for crying out loud. But these weddings lasted around a week long. But those who attended the wedding feast were free to leave the party at any single time. Now, when the master would leave his house and go to a wedding feast, he would actually leave his servants in charge of the house, and their role was to maintain the house while he was gone. Now, just because the master left the house doesn't mean that the servants in the house should start loafing around and being lazy. They should work in the house with the same diligence that they would if the master was actually at home. They should live with eager anticipation of the soon return of the master. They have no clue when he's coming, but they know his coming is expected. Chuck Swindoll notes concerning this verse, quote, Upon the return of the master, he should not have to bang on his own outer gates like a beggar. The head steward should post a lookout who would warn the rest of the household when the master appears on the horizon. One servant should open the gate upon his arrival while another helps him into the house. And as a crew unloads his belongings, the table should be set with the appropriate meal for the hour, end quote. Now, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and to us in the text, actually foreshadowing the reality that he will be going away for a time. The kingdom will be given to the disciples on the earth, and they were to manage the household of faith well. They were to accomplish their assigned duties, representing their master, who is Jesus, and daily anticipating his soon return. This is true of you and I as well. Listen closely. When we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are adopted into the family of God. The Bible says in Romans 8 that we are given the Holy Spirit, whereby we now are able to call out Abba, Father. So we become members of God's household of faith upon the earth. Now, as a member of God's household of faith, we are not to live our lives loafing around and being lazy as it pertains to living for Christ. Instead, we should serve with due diligence, fulfilling our spiritual duties within the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, representing our master to those who are far from God, and daily anticipating the soon return of the Lord Jesus. And notice verse 37 in your Bible. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert. That term literally means wide awake. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find wide awake when he turns, when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Now very quickly, this is a remarkable turn of events. Typically when a master would return home from a journey, he would receive unbelievable pampering by the staff of the house. But Jesus states that the master will actually have the alert servants recline at the table. And while they recline at the table, the master will begin girding up himself and serving the stewards of the house. Now think about what Jesus is describing here. Is everybody with me? Say yes. He, Jesus, is actually describing for the disciples what will happen when he comes for them. He is describing what will take place when he comes for us. As we are employing our spiritual gifts in the body of Jesus Christ, faithfully serving, as we are representing the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ to those who are far from God, and as you and I are anticipating the return of Jesus Christ at any moment, the Bible teaches Jesus is going to show up. 
Now, you would think that when our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, shows up, that we would roll up our sleeves and quickly begin to serve him. But Jesus actually teaches in this parable that he himself will have the disciples sit down and he will gird up himself and serve us. Y'all all right? Now, this is interesting. Some of you right now are probably thinking what I thought when I began to study this text of Scripture. Serve me? Are you kidding? You can't serve me. I need to serve you. Let me gird up myself. Let me grab the waiter's table. Let me be the one who's getting out there doing all of the serving. That's how Peter was as well. In the New Testament, when Jesus showed up into the upper room, and there the disciples were, and nobody had washed anyone's feet, The Bible says that Jesus grabbed a towel and grabbed a basin of water and he began to go around and wash everybody's feet. Do y'all remember this? And Peter's like, you ain't going to wash my feet. That's Lula Peter. Y'all with me? (laughs) You're not going to wash my feet. And then Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, then you can't have a part in the kingdom. He says, wash me all over then. There he is washing his feet. And that as well is a foreshadowing of the fact that when Jesus returns and us anticipating his return will be sat down at a table, a marriage supper of the Lamb of God, and we will be served by the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a phenomenal picture this is for us to be served by the Lord which that may still bother some of you, but Mark chapter 10 and 45 tells us when Jesus came, he did not come to be served but to serve. Jesus also said to his disciples in the upper room that we would not have this meal with him again until we had it in the kingdom. Who's serving it in the kingdom? Christ. So Jesus will come again for us, and when he finds you on the alert, you will be seated by him and you will be served. And then verse 38, notice what the Bible says. Whether he comes in the second watch or even the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. Second watch is a time period ranging between 9 p.m. and midnight. Uh, The third watch is a time period which ranges from midnight till 3 a.m. So the point that Jesus Christ is really getting at here is that his return should be expected by his followers in the same manner that an individual goes to a wedding feast and that master comes back. We should be looking for him to come. We should be ready because his coming is expected. But then secondly, we should be ready because his coming will be unexpected. Now, this is interesting. You just said it's expected. Now you're saying it's unexpected. Make up your mind, preacher. His coming is expected in the sense that we know he is coming again. His coming, however, is unexpected in the sense that we don't know the exact time when it will occur. Nobody has a clue when Jesus Christ is going to return. Anybody who tells you they do, they are lying. Y'all all right? They just don't know. Nobody knows. Jesus moves in verse 39 to a, it reminds me too, just for free, because it's interesting. Y'all remember that book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Come Back in 1988. And then 1988 came and went. I was fretting it too, man. I was a little kid. Like, 88, he coming? He didn't show up. So in 1989, 89 reasons why he's coming in 89. Revision. I don't know if they wrote that, but that'd be funny if they did. (laughs) So his coming will be unexpected. Look at verse 39. He says, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. 
Now, this is common sense, right? I mean, a thief doesn't shoot you an email and tell you what time he's going to show up and break into your house. A thief doesn't show up on your front lawn and send you a text and say, I am here, LOL. <laughs> Very good. Third service, y'all got it. First service, I'm afraid it was a generational gap. And, uh, they were like, LOL. Y'all don't tell them I said that. If you're aware of a time when a thief is actually going to come and break into your house, you are going to get ready, man. And you can imagine what you would do if you knew a thief was coming. You'd be prepared, wouldn't you? I mean, don't get too violent in your mind, but you understand the picture here. Jesus talks about his return and actually uses the description of a thief showing up unexpectedly. This isn't the first time this has happened. This is a common expression throughout the New Testament to describe the coming of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, Paul writing 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2, uh, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3 and 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Therefore, Jesus gives us application on how we are to live in light of his unexpected timing. Notice what he says in verse 40. You too, be ready. Be ready. Be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. Now, the saintly Presbyterian pastor, Robert Murray McShane, sometimes asked his people, do you believe that Jesus is coming today? And if they replied in the negative, that is, they would say, no, we don't believe he will, he would respond, then you better get ready, for he's coming at an hour when you think not. And some of you are in the building this morning, you're like, the return of Jesus, we'll see. Be ready. His coming is expected. Be ready. His coming will be unexpected. And then thirdly, be ready because his coming will divide. His coming will divide. Notice verse 41 through 42. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? So Jesus here is asking a question. Who am I going to find when I return who is a faithful and sensible slave? Now, I want you to imagine for just a moment the Lord Jesus Christ shows up at church, all right? He's in the flesh, incarnate, standing right in front of us, right here at Concord on the platform, and he looks out at you and I and says, when I return, who among you will I find faithfully serving other people? When I get back, who will I find representing my heart and passion to those who are far from my father? Who will I find actually anticipating the fact that I was coming again. And this really is stating the heart of a genuine convert. This is awesome. This, this reality is not accomplishing all of these things perfectly, but these realities are increasing in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your love for others is increasing. So you serve. If you're a follower of Jesus, your love for those who are far from God is increasing. So you serve. If you're a follower of Jesus, your love for him is increasing. So you serve other people. If you have genuine faith, it'll be evidenced in your love for others. And if your love is for real, that will show up and manifest itself in the fact that you serve one another. If you like that, you are not a genuine convert. You don't know Christ. It's like, serve other people. I got no desire to do that. It's because the Holy Spirit don't live inside of you, man. The Spirit of God's the one who gives you that desire. 
Jesus says in verse 43, Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. So Jesus is like, when I come for you, my true disciples, I'm going to bless your faithfulness by giving you great responsibility in the kingdom. Now the scripture teaches that Jesus Christ will one day come back to the earth. Put his foot down here and split the Mount of Olives, the Bible says. He's coming back to establish his kingdom. And to be a literal kingdom upon the earth will last for a thousand years. It's found in the book of Revelation. And don't spiritualize that, man. You can't spiritualize a thousand years, all right? It's coming back. Kingdom will be set up. And those who serve in his kingdom will be those who are faithful and wise stewards while Jesus was away. And the true disciples of Christ will be given roles and responsibilities to fulfill in this literal earthly kingdom established by Jesus. So the roles and responsibilities given to disciples will be based upon the faithful service of the disciples while the master was gone. In other words, what you are doing now faithfully for the glory of the Son of God will be rewarded in the kingdom. And if you are faithfully serving here, the Bible says he will give you more to do in the kingdom. Remember, Jesus came, Jesus died. And he was resurrected. Don't forget he got it from the dead. Amen. So he's alive. And then he ascended into the heavens where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father. But there's a promise given in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. And the promise is given to the disciples. They had just seen Jesus ascend into the clouds. So they're sitting there hanging out with Jesus. And all of a sudden he goes up. And they're just looking up like, where did he go? And then an angel shows up and says, men in the Galilee, I mean, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, listen to what is said here, this same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now when Jesus returns, there'll be a division between those who stay in the kingdom and those who do not get to stay in the kingdom. Look at your Bible, verse 45. If that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, or at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Did y'all see that? He's going to cut him in pieces. Good night. Now, there's a universal principle concerning humanity, and listen closely. The universal principle is that Jesus is king over the entire earth. The problem is that some people recognize him as such, and some continue to live in rebellion to his divine authority. That describes the slave in verse 45. They hear the message of Jesus Christ's return, and they're like, well, if he's coming, it isn't anytime soon. Let's just live how we please, man. His return really isn't that big of a deal. Pass me a beer. Jesus assures that he will show up when that slave doesn't think he will, and he will, in that moment, be cut into pieces. And this speaks about the severity of the judgment which will be issued to unbelievers. The slave will be assigned a place with unbelievers. What is that place? Well, the Bible teaches in both the Old and the New Testament that that place is the lake of fire. It's hell. And the slave will stand before the master at the great white throne judgment. And the slave will be judged based upon his records of violations in thought, in word, and in deed. And the unbeliever will not be given a place in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will, in fact, be completely excluded from it and suffer everlasting punishment for their rebellious hearts. And the punishment for those without Christ will be unending, with absolutely zero opportunity for escaping. 
I remember listening to a preacher named E.V. Hill on one occasion. He was preaching an entire message on hell. He was older in age and unable to stand up the entire message, and so they actually had a chair put out for him. And so he sat on a chair in front of a very large audience and preached on an unpopular topic, which is hell. And while he was preaching there, I remember him distinctly pointing at all of the doors in the building. And he said, y'all look at all these doors. He said, above those doors, see what it reads? It says, exit. It says, when I finish my sermon tonight, I will dismiss you and you will exit out these doors. But when you get to hell, there are no exits. You are there, no other way to get out. You are suffering eternally damned because you would not bend your knee to the sovereign Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in rebellion toward God, you receive his wrath forever. You're like, why is it forever? Because your sin eternally indicts the Son of God. And because your sin eternally indicts the Son of God, your judgment is for eternity. You pay for that, pay for that. And as we continue to read our text this morning, there becomes a stark reality that some will actually experience a far worse hell than other people when the master returns. So notice in your Bible, verse 47, that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready and act in accordance with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. So Jesus here explains that there are some who understand the master's will but still choose to ignore and rebel against it. However, there are others who do not know the master's will and yet they still live in rebellion toward divine authority. Those who know his will and ignore it will receive a greater degree of punishment than those who do not know his will. Here we can begin to see that those who knew the master's will would be uh, characterized in Luke's gospel as Israel. They had the promises of the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, outlined to them throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. They had the Old Testament prophets and the law, which pointed to Christ. And then Christ shows up standing right in front of them, and they're like, we want nothing to do with him. They knew the master's will, and they still rejected it. And as a result, what great damnation they received. John MacArthur notes on this verse particularly, quote, the degree of punishment is proportionate with the extent to which the unfaithful behavior was willful. That there will be varying degrees of punishment in hell is clearly seen and taught in the scripture. Note as well that even those who did not have the same amount of truth revealed to them, although ignorant, are without excuse. And Paul reminds us of this as well in Romans 1 and 18. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, the very fact that creation is in front of you logically dictates that there must be a creator. And yet people still reject the divine authority of a creative God. And even if they don't hear the entirety of the gospel, they will die and stand before God without any excuse whatsoever. And they'll be damned to hell. 
because of their rebellion. In other words, no one can stand before the master in that great day of judgment and claim ignorance. Since they weren't privy to the same amount of truth as others, although they will be in hell, their degree of punishment will be less severe. And I don't know about you, but hell's hell, man. But the Bible teaches that there are different degrees of punishment, different degrees of hell. Even this morning as I'm preaching, there are a group of angels who have fallen, who have been cast into the deepest parts of hell. And they are there. So there's no doubt that there's different leveling of degrees, but depending on the amount of truth that you receive and the amount of truth you reject, that determines your damnation. Now, when I think about this, it bothers me. Somebody saw me before the service and said, you look depressed. I said, I've been preaching on hell for two hours. I am depressed. We have today, are y'all listening? Say yes. We have today more truth than any other generation. We have the Old Testament prophets and law pointing to Christ, understanding his first coming, understanding as well now his second coming. We have the New Testament, which testifies to the reality of Jesus' death on the cross for your salvation, the truth of his burial, the truth of his resurrection, the truth of his ascension, the truth of his coming again. We have all of this truth. And you hear it, some of you, every single Sunday about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And you hear a preacher say, repent of your sin, come to faith. And yet some of you still with hard hearts said, no, not for me, not now. Listen to the preacher. You are stacking up more damnation for yourself when you see God one day. You need to repent and come to Christ. Somebody say, you keep preaching on hell like that. That scares us. It ought to scare you. That's what drives me nuts. People are like, don't preach on the hell. It's not to scare people into salvation. So what? Perhaps that's why the Hebrew author said it like this. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Listen, you've heard the truth. How do you think you're going to get away with it if you neglect it? Hebrew author goes on to state in chapter 10, how much, listen to the author, severer punishment. Notice that. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? So some of you, you've been in church all your life, and that's great. You've heard sermons on the cross of Calvary. You and your mind's eye have even imagined what it must have been like for Jesus when the cat of nine towels were raked across his back and the blood flowed. And the crown of thorns thrusted upon his head as they plucked his beard and punched his face. You've imagined what it must be like when the blood fell from his hands and his feet and it actually spilt down on the floor beneath him right in the sand. You pictured that spear going into his side. You've seen the blood flow. You've understood the truth of the gospel intellectually that God the Father treated Christ the Son on the cross as if he committed every sin of every person who's ever breathed the breath of life. You've understood it, but you still have not responded, and you are trampling over the blood of his Son. How do you think you're going to get away with that? You won't. And that's the point of the text. You better be ready. Because when Jesus comes back, it's not like some people when they say, well, you don't understand, preacher, me and the Lord, we got our own thing going. No, you don't. If you've not come to Christ, there is no other option. All right? 
So you don't have your own thing going. I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm trying to help you, all right? Some of you are on the edge of eternal hell, and I'm trying to beg you to come back this way. And what's amazing is Jesus Christ talked more on hell than he did on heaven. And yet when a preacher like me gets up and preaches on hell, they'll be like, well, good night. Oh, he talks about hellfire and brimstone. You would have hated to listen to Christ preach. That's what he talked about. Why? He's warning you. Wrath is coming, man. Are you ready? Jesus says it like this in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Do y'all hear this? Some people are going to die and stand before Jesus and be like, wait a minute. We preached in your name. Well, we cast out demons in your name. It's amazing to consider how powerful the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is. That even an unconverted heart can deliver a message of hope and people's lives be changed. And yet the very one speaking is on his way to hell. And so often people are like, why would you preach such a message like that in front of a religious crowd? I mean, all of us go to church. Why are you talking about hell this morning? Because Jesus talked about it in front of all the religious people. And they were counting on their religion. I'm religious. I'm going to heaven. I'm religious. I'm going to heaven. And Jesus comes and says, you don't get it, man. But when I return, if you don't come to faith in me, I will cut you into pieces. That doesn't sound like a God of love. Really? God graciously gave his son, Jesus Christ, so you could miss hell and make heaven, and you reject it? What else do you need? There's the love. No greater love has any man than this, than Jesus Christ who would give himself up for his friends. God demonstrated his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's the love. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13 and 5, examine yourselves to see if you're of the faith. Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. Put yourself on the table, man. It's time to look into your heart. Not did you walk down some aisle in a church one day. Not did you get baptized one day. Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Are you following hard after him? Has he changed you? And Paul goes on to say in the same verse, do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? You don't recognize Jesus in you? Charles Spurgeon once said, if Christ is not all to you, he is nothing to you. He will never go into partnership as a part-time savior of men. If he be something, he must be everything. And if he be not everything... He is nothing to you. And if he's nothing to you, then know one day you will receive damnation. Are you ready? Because he, he's coming again. And he will see you. There, listen, there is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. 
Are y'all listening? Say yes. You will, I'm, I'm not trying to be dramatic. I'm just trying to, I wish I could come out there and shake some of you. You're going to die, all right? And you're going to see the Lord face to face. Some of you are like, I'll plead my case then. No, you won't. Your mouth to be closed by the law of God. You have nothing to say. You'll all of a sudden for the first time realize you've been comparing yourself to humanity where you thought you were all right. But when you see Christ, you're going to realize that you fell miserably in comparison to his divine holiness. You are full of sin. Heaven is perfect. We are imperfect. And he can't allow imperfect people into a perfect place. We'll mess it up. So God, by his grace alone, must count us as perfect. And he does that when we come to Christ. He places into you and I the righteousness of his son, Jesus. Forgiveness of sin, imputed righteousness. Stand before God now. It's righteous, clean. Some of you, man, you're still, you're still denying it, denying it. Not now, not now, not yet, not yet, not yet. Y'all care if I use the word dumb? Y'all all right? That is dumb theology. Dumb. And it's one of those things where it's like, uh, what else can a preacher do? You know, the Bible says in the Corinthians that through the foolishness of pe preaching, people are saved. And so as I preach up here, I imagine in my heart, some people are probably sitting going, good night, that boy, he's, he's kind of acting like a fool. Yep. I thought he had a doctorate degree. Yep. Sweating and carrying on about hell. We should have turned all the heaters up is what we should have done. <laughs> Serious thing, man. John the Baptist is like, who warned y'all to flee from the wrath that is to come? Y'all coming out here to get baptized? Who warned y'all? Baptism ain't going to get the wrath away from you. Who warned you to flee? <laughs> Are you ready? Are you ready? It's coming as expected. It's coming... It's going to divide. Here, here's another question for you. Uh, you going to be in the kingdom or out of the kingdom? Is your family ready? Uh, your friends ready? Your neighbors ready? Your co-workers ready? People who live on your street, are they ready? Are y'all listening? Say yes. If somebody goes to hell from White County or Hall County, they should not enter into hell without passing by a church that is praying for their soul. They should not enter into hell passing by a church that does not share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If they go into hell, they ought to go into hell with us grabbing hold of their ankles, pleading for them to be saved. That should be our heartbeats. And that is the heartbeat of genuine converts. Spurgeon said again, a good quote, you have no desire to see people saved. Be sure of this, you're not saved yourself. So it's like, reach out to other people. I never even thought about that. I never had any desire to reach out to other people because you ain't saved. Once you come to Christ and you get on the salvation bus, so to speak, you start inviting everybody to get on. So all of a sudden, you start realizing people are just walking off into hell. How can we sit quietly? And some of you need to get ready this morning because you ain't. Well, let's pray. Father, speak to hearts even now.